body of believers. Amen. Uh, today, today uh, we get to discuss one of the glorious doctrines, topics in the scriptures. Um, something so glorious that we get to partake of every week. Every Sunday we get to partake in this glorious event. This this event, this activity is more glorious than your own birth. It is more glorious than the birth of your child. It is more glorious than that wedding day when you've seen her walk down the aisle. It's it's more glorious than the Super Bowl or if you like baseball World Series or if you like NBA, NBA Finals. It is just so glorious, this, this thing that we get to participate in every week here at the bridge. And that event is known as the Lord's Supper or Communion. Oh, if you, I pray by God's Spirit, you can see the glory of what we get to partake of. It will, you, you will rejoice. You will rejoice because in it, we, we, we see the glory of God. We see His, His, His majesty. And see, some people just see it as you taking a cup of of, of juice and bread and just taking a, a, a snack. But if they only knew the glory in it and what we are remembering when we do it, it is a, it is a glorious event that if by God's grace through the working of the Holy Spirit, if you can see this thing, you will rejoice and be so thankful and see it as God's grace that every week you get to partake of it. It's grace. When you see it and why is it so glorious? Because it represents one of the greatest acts of love of God by God bestowed upon a human race. The, the Lord's Supper or communion. It is the inauguration. It's the beginning. It's the official start date of the, the new covenant where God promises to give us his people a, a new heart, a new spirit. He promises to forgive our sins forevermore. He promises that we will now be his people. That is a beautiful day. And so this is what he is talking about in this Lord's Supper when we come together. It's the glory of it. And so today I want us to look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. And we're going to go down to verse 28. And we're going to look at the glory of this, this thing. The Lord's Supper, the beauty in it. And today, this is probably more of a teaching. I just hope you, so it's going to be a lot of scriptures, but I, I'm doing this because I want you to see the glory. I don't want to just teach straight through this, but I want you to see the glory with your own eyes, the glory of our God and what he's doing. So if you go with me to Matthew 26, chapter 26, verse 26 through 28. And it reads, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. 
And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. Look at these beautiful words coming up next. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. Beautiful words. And so we're going to we're going to dig into this scripture. But before we dig into this scripture, we have to understand the new covenant and what Jesus is talking about when he says the blood of the covenant. And in order for us to understand this new covenant, we have to understand the old covenant. So we're going to take the the long route to get back to this text. We're going to look at this text here and then we're going to go the long route and go to the Old Testament and look at the old covenant and get some 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 fruit out of that. And then we're going to move from there to the to the new covenant. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter eight, where he quotes the prophet Jeremiah and he gives us the details of some of, of the new covenant. And then we're going to come back here on 26. And hopefully by that, you have a greater understanding why Jesus is saying what he is saying. So we're just taking a long way, the long route, if you were a kid, to get back here. We're going to look at the old first, just pieces of, we're going to look at the new. And from that, we're going to come back here to 26, and this will give us a better understanding of what Jesus is talking about here in this communion, this Lord's Supper that we participate in every week here. So again, I ask the question, why is this so glorious? Because it is the beginning, it represents the beginning of God's Covenant promises, the inauguration of those things, these these promises that God had made long before in the Old Testament. And so ultimately, the, the new covenant, another way to look at it is say it's also a celebration of God's faithfulness because God had promised this this new covenant way long, long, long time ago to the Old Testament prophets. All throughout the Old Testament, you see little hints and pieces of this new covenant that's coming. And so this thing that Jesus is talking about is the fulfilling, the bringing in of this. So as we celebrate the Lord's uh, Supper, we're really celebrating God's faithfulness to his word because he had promised this thing long, long time ago. So before we get into this text, we I think we, we it's best for us to get an understanding of what a covenant is, right? If we're going to talk about the new covenant and the old covenant and why it is so glorious, I think we need to have a, a good foundation of what a covenant is. So a covenant is, it's basically an agreement. It's like a, a contract. If you ever leased a car, you essentially entered into a covenant. If you ever rented a apartment or a home, you have entered into a covenant. You're saying, I am agreeing to do such and such a thing, pay my rent, whatever it is. We are agreeing to do such and such a thing to allow you to stay here and such and such. If you don't do such and such a thing by paying your rent, then we are going to do such and such a thing by kicking you out. See, that that's that's the covenant. You're entering into an agreement. There's oftentimes there's two parties. One is saying, here's my obligation. The other is saying, here's my obligation. And so they're coming together in agreement. This is a conditional covenant when you're saying, if you do such and such a thing, I'm going to do such and such a thing. So so that's a covenant. It's basically an agreement. It's an it's agreement. It's a contract. And so now I want us to think about what I just said as far as what a covenant is. And I want us to just kind of look at the old covenant. And I want to see if you can draw what type of contract this was, what type of agreement this is or was. And then we're going to move from there to the new covenant. So go with me to Exodus chapter 19. I told you you're going to use your Bible today. Going to use your Bible today.
19, verse 5 and 6. Let me give you some background here. This is Moses. The children of Israel have, have already left Egypt. And so God has given Moses some, some, some things that he's going to tell the people, some commands, some statutes. And the people are saying, yes, God, everything you said, we are going to do. All of your statutes, all of your commandments, all the things you said, God, yes, we are going to do those things. Oh, God, we love you. And so this is what Moses tells the people from God. Verse 5 and 6. He says, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, there's our key word, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So he's saying we're making a covenant here. And if you, if you keep your side of this covenant, all of these things are going to come to you. And so he, he's letting them know you're, you're entering into this, this contract, this agreement with God, with me. And let, let's see what happens if they're obedient. Go with me the same, go to the next book to your right, go to Leviticus. Next book to your right, Leviticus 26, verse 3. Just go to your right, next book, Leviticus 26, verse 3. And we're going to see the um, reward for obedience to God's covenant. What's going to come if they obey, if they are, if they keep the covenant. 26, verse 3. Look what he says. If you Walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out for it. Then I will give you rain in their season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. As a matter of fact, we just stop there. Because as you read this whole, if you read all the way down, you're going to see all the blessings that's going to come for obedience, for, for keeping and walking in the covenant that God is making with them. These are all the good things that's going to come as they follow God, as they keep the covenant. Now, I want you to look at verse 14. Now, we're going to see what happens when he, when you break the covenant. Look what happens here. He says, but if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul at harbors my ordinance so as not to carry out my commandments and so to break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will point over you sudden terror, consumption, fever will waste away your eyes and cause the soul to pine away. And you can keep reading on down and down and what's going to happen as a consequence of disobedience, of breaking the covenant. And guess what? Most of the Old Testament is filled with verse 14. Most of the Old Testament is filled of verse 14. The children of Israel, God is blessing them. God is doing great things in their life, but yet they go and they worship false gods. God is doing great things in their life, yet they go and they disobey his commandments. God is doing things in their life, yet they go and they actually corrupt God's commandments. You have the priests where now they're being greedy and thinking about their own gain. You have people who, who God says, you have to bring to me the perfect sacrifice because I demand your best. And so I suppose to bring in God the good cow they bring God the sick and weakly and blind calf and they keep the good one for themselves and so they're doing all of these corrupt things to God by disobeying his covenant 
But God didn't utterly just destroy them. He didn't just utterly take them out right at the moment. And and this is just a side note, because I always hear people say that the God of the Old Testament was not a God of grace, that he was just mean and he was just strict. But when you read through the Old Testament, God was very full of grace. He gave them many chances. He gave them many opportunities to, to feel their side of the covenant. But they just didn't do it. They just saw the ways of the world as better. They just seen the, 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 the gods of the world as, as more better, more superior. So even though God was gracious to them, they just went and did what they wanted to do. But God ultimately, in keeping with his word, he did punish Israel. They did feel his wrath. Their enemies did conquer them. Their princes and their kings got demolished. They were killed. Their prophets, princes, kings, they were often killed. People starved to death as their enemies surrounded them. They lost their homeland. They did. God did come through and do what he said. And because of their disobedience. But even despite their disobedience, even though they would live in exile, even though their enemies would conquer them, even though all these bad things happen upon them because of their disobedience, God was still merciful by promising that, okay, you've broken my old covenant. Guess what? I'm going to make a new one with you. See, that, that is the, the mercy and grace of God that even though they broke his old covenant, even though they walked in their own ways, God out of his mercy is saying, yet I'm still going to make a new covenant with you. I'm going to make a new agreement with you. And this makes me think about Psalms 30, um, 35, 30 verse 5, where he says that God's anger lasts for only but a moment. But his favor, it lasts a lifetime. See, Israel had this favor upon God. So, yes, they felt his wrath and his anger, but there was his favor there. And so God gives them the new covenant, a promise of the new covenant. And so God, he tells the priests and he, I mean, he tells the prophets that he's going to make this new covenant with them and that something better is coming. And, and even though you've done all these things, I, I have this great thing coming for you. So I just, I just want you to think about this. Think about this. God has taken his people out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery. He released them from that. He delivered them part by through the, the Red Sea from their enemies. When they were hungry, they received manna from heaven. They, they conquered all of their enemies. They, they got land. They got all of these great things. And, and, and yet they still would walk away and serve other gods and walk in their flesh and do all these crazy things. And God says that I'm going to make a new covenant with you. With these people who have walked out of his will and are doing all the things that they want to do, God is saying, yes, I'm still going to make a new covenant with you. And not only am I going to make a new covenant with you, this new covenant is going to be grander, it's going to be better than the one that I made with you at first. Which again, this shows the mercy of our God here in this new covenant. I mean, in this uh, coming new covenant. So that's the old covenant right there. That's just a quick summary of what happened here with the children of Israel in the Old Testament and how God made this covenant and how they just walked in their ways. Yet God was merciful and God promises to send a new covenant that's going to be so much better, so much grander than the thing that they had, even though they don't deserve it, even though they've walked in their own ways. So go with me now 
to Hebrews chapter 8, where we can begin to look at some of the details of this new covenant. So Hebrews, New Testament, chapter 8, verse 8. And here the writer of Hebrews is going to quote prophet Jeremiah about the new covenant. So I just kind of want us to go through here so we can see the new covenant. Because once we understand this, then what we read in Matthew 26 makes more sense. So Hebrews. Chapter 8, verse 8, he says, For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will affect a, here's our word, a what? What is he saying here? New covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. When you first read it at first glance, you can say, hold on. Yes, God is making a new covenant. I do see that as plain text right there. But he says, with the house of Israel and Judah. I'm not the house of Israel and Judah. God is making a new covenant, but he's saying it's with the house of Israel and Judah. The reason he's saying it's with the house of Israel and Judah is because at this time, the kingdom of God, as far as his people here on earth, the Old Testament people, they were set up into two kingdoms. You had uh, Israel in the north. And you had Judah in the south. So there was a separation between God's chosen people. And so he's saying this covenant is going to be with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah is to show the unity of this new covenant. So don't take this to mean that, oh, this is not for me. This is for the uh, house of Israel and the house of Judah. No, he, he is showing us a, a unity. And when you look in the New Testament, you see the apostle Paul. He shows us that the Gentiles, us, people who are not Jewish, are also a part of this new covenant plan. For example, look at Romans chapter 9, verse 22. Go to Romans 9, 22. And I want to show you the Apostle Paul shows us how this is not just for the house of Israel and the house of Judah, but this new covenant that God is promising, this new covenant that God is making, also is to, is to all who will come. Here the apostle quotes again the Old Testament, Hosea. He says here, in 23, I'm going to start here in 23. And it says, And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. So right here you have the apostle. He, he's telling the, the, the body that, yes, this covenant, this it extends to you. It is not just to the Jewish nation, but it extends to you. This is the Old Testament. He, he's showing them that this was always a part of God's plan. It was not just this new thing that God said, oh, I'm going to bring this other people in. But it was always a part of his plan to graft those who were far off into God's new covenant. And you'll also find this with the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. He talks about those who are far off. 
and how God, how they are now a part of this new covenant. So this is not just a children of Israel, house of Judah thing. This covenant that God is making, this glorious covenant extends to everyone, to all who will come. And you actually see Jesus speaking about this in, in verses of, uh, of John chapter 10, verse 16, where he says that he has sheep that are not of, of this fold, that are not of the fold of the house of Israel, but those who are outside of the fold, speaking of us Gentiles. So this, this covenant, again, it is not something that extends to one group of people, but it extends into many people. It extends to all who will come. And that is the, that is the beauty of what's happening here. So let's get back to our, our, our text in Hebrews. Go back there as we keep looking at this new covenant. And I want us to look at verse 9 and 10. Verse 9, it says, Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Verse 10. For this, the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, says the Lord, I will look, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Do you see what God is saying here in this verse? God gave the Old Testament people, the children of Israel, his commandments, his ordinance, his rules, things like the Ten Commandments, things that we read in Leviticus. He gave them all of these statues, these ceremonial laws, these, these moral laws, all of these different commandments to keep. Yet the children of Israel just threw them aside. But what God is showing us here in these verses in 9 and 10, he said, I'm, I, this time I'm not leaving it up to man and his flesh to, to carry out their side of the agreement. He's taking it a little bit further. He's not leaving it up to the children of Israel on their own to go and carry out their side of the agreement. Because if that's the case, we're just going to fall just like they fell. But God is taking it a little bit further here. And he's saying that I'm actually going to write my laws on their heart. I'm going to write it on their mind. See, that's the difference between the old and the new covenant. The old covenant, they were given these external laws and and decrees. But God is saying now in this new covenant, I'm going to take it a step further. I'm going to actually go and work in the heart and in the conscience so that you will come and keep your side of the agreement. That's the beauty of what God is doing here. And that's why he said, I'm going to write it on their minds and I'm going to write it upon their hearts. Look at verse 10. Look at the I wills. Look at all the I wills in verse 10. I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. God here is taking the initiative. He's not leaving it to the people in their flesh. But God is working in us to carry out the weak side of the covenant. God's side of the covenant is always faithful. God will carry out his side. But us humans, we in the flesh, we are the ones that are in doubt. But God is now moving and strengthening us by writing his word upon our heart, by writing his word upon our minds and conscience. That is different from the old covenant where it was just spoken. So he's he's elevating the covenant. He is showing that he he's moving on our behalf so that we will walk in his ways. That's the beauty. And I want I want to show you, matter of fact, look how the, the prophet Ezekiel um brings this covenant into, into bear. 
He gives us a, a different version of the same covenant. Go to the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36. Old Testament, Ezekiel 36. I hope this will make it even more clear for you. See how God is actually, he's, he's, he's doing it all. He's the initiator. He's taking the initiative all upon himself. It's not like the old covenant. Look at Ezekiel 36. Look at verse 25. Let's see who's taking the initiative here. He says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you. That's another Zen I will, just like those Zen I wills in Hebrews. It's God taking the initiative. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filth and from all your idols. 26. Moreover, another I will. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 27, another I will. I will put my spirit within you. Here's the word. Look at this verse. Look what he's saying. Look how he's helping us to carry out our side of the covenant, our side of the agreement. Look what he's doing here. He said, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So God is taking the initiative here. God, God is working by his spirit and, and writing his word on our heart and our, and our minds. And he's moving in us to walk in his ways. It's not us. It's him. It's, it's his doing. He's talking about him and his spirit working in us and causing us to, to move and walk in God's righteous ways. And just a, a, a side note. He says he's going to give us a new heart and a new spirit. If you've ever wondered, am I born? Have I been born again? I, I got a question. Do you have new affections? Do you have new desires? Do you have new desires for God? Because that's what comes with a new heart and a new mind. Once your old heart is gone, now you have a new heart with new affections, new desires, and a new spirit. So if you want to ask yourself, have I been born again? My question is, has your heart changed? How are your affections? Are you still desiring the same things? Are there new desires? Are there new hopes? Because God says when we are in Christ, we become new creatures. Guess what? That means that we get new appetites. We don't desire the old soulful, sinful things. But now we have new desires and new appetites for the righteous and holy things. So that is a question we must ask ourselves. Has this occurred in my life? Have I received a new appetite, a, a new heart? And I desire now the things of God because his heart is working in me and his spirit is working in me. That's a question we must ask ourselves. We want to know, have I been born again? Have these things happened? What I'm reading here in Ezekiel, have my affections changed? Have my desires? So God is saying, I'm taking the initiative over here. I'm, I'm working in you. We have a covenant and agreement. I'm keeping mine. I know you're weak over here on keeping yours. So now I'm going to come and strengthen you to walk in this way, to walk in my will. Unlike of old, when it was just all man and God and man just fall away and went his own way. And you see that this same thought also being carried out in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul, he writes to the church in Philippi. If you want to go back to the New Testament, when we go there to Philippians 2.13. Philippians 2.13. Go there real quick. And I want to show you how this, this same thought is being carried out where God is the initiator, where God is the one working and moving in us to do it. It's not us. 
And that's part of the promises of this new covenant. Philippians 2, 13, are we here? Look what he reads here, how it reads. It says, for it is God who is at work in you both to will, have the desire, and to work for his good pleasure. So the will and desire and the drive that you have to do, God, those things that are of God, it's because God is working in you that will. And he's giving you the ability to carry out that desire. Just like what we're seeing here in, in Ezekiel, when he says he's giving you the Holy Spirit to walk in his ways. Just like when God is talking about, I'm writing my word on your heart and your mind. I'm doing heart and mind, but I'm saying mind. It's the same thing here. Well, God, he is working in you. It's him. He's working us to carry out the side of the covenant because we wouldn't do it without his spirit. We wouldn't do it without this new heart. God is taking the initiative. How's he doing it? He's doing it by his spirit. The Holy Spirit working inside of us. And the Holy Spirit, see, the Holy Spirit is a big deal. The Holy Spirit is such a big deal. And I believe because of the various mischaracterizations uh, of the Holy Spirit in many groups and sect that we kind of just gloss over the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is so big. And it's, that's the, that is one of the greatest things about this new covenant is the giving of the Holy Spirit. See, we must realize and recognize that the Holy Spirit that he talks about we're going to receive in this new covenant, the new covenant promises in Ezekiel, the Holy Spirit is not just some consolation prize that we get for entering into a covenant with God. It's not just some little consolation prize that if, yes, I really wanted Jesus, but since I can't have them, you can give me this Holy Spirit. No, it is not like that. But Jesus said in John 16, 7 to his disciples that it was to your advantage that he leaves so that the Holy Spirit can come. This Holy Spirit is a huge part. It is a reason why we should be praising God for this new covenant because we get God himself in a closer, more intimate way. So that's why Ezekiel says, I'm going to give you my spirit so that you can walk in my ways. I want you to think about this. I was dwelling on this the other day with me and my wife. The New Testament believers, the Gentiles, Paul would go there, or an evangelist would go there. He would go and preach the gospel to them. Some would get converted. All they would really know is the gospel. That evangelist or Paul would then appoint an elder, and then he would leave. And every now and then Paul would write letters and different things like that. But all they had was they had the gospel who Jesus was and they had this elder who Paul who was just a new Christian just like them and they didn't have anything else how did they get by they didn't have you got you understand it they didn't have this new testament book they didn't have the full canon they didn't have Hebrews and all these scriptures to go and read and see this is what godliness looks like. They couldn't go to the gospel. Some of the gospels weren't even written at the time. Yes, they had oral tradition, but many of these, they weren't written. And these were Gentiles. They were far away from Jerusalem. They were, they were way out there. So they, they didn't have any of this that we now have. How did they get by? How were they still living so righteously? How were they still doing all of these great works by sacrificing themselves and, and giving to others to it hurt? How did they do all of these things without having anybody explain to them how to live and do all of that? It was the Holy Spirit. It was God's word being written on their heart and on their mind. 
And see, we are even more privileged because we have the Holy Spirit. God has written his word on our hearts and on our minds. And we also have scripture. We also have YouTube. We also have books. We also have audio books. We also have um, um, many churches you can go to. We are so privileged. They were just walking, depending upon the Holy Spirit. Whatever little letter Paul would come in, they would get in better understanding. But they're just walking, depending upon the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is sufficient. But the believers, you have everything in you right now to be a success in God's eyes to carry out his will and his purposes. You are not lacking anything. You have everything you need. God has equipped you with the Holy Spirit, with the word written on your heart, with the, the literal written word, with, with a church. You have everything you need to go and walk in righteousness. These people in the new covenant, the Gentiles, the believers, they were just walking dependent upon the Holy Spirit. They didn't have all of that. So that shows you that the Holy Spirit is so powerful in your life. And it's such a big deal when Ezekiel says that thing is coming. The Holy Spirit is coming. They, they were rejoicing. That, that's a good thing. That's not like, oh, the Holy Spirit. They're like, what? The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit is coming and he's going to now dwell in me? Like, like God is going to really dwell in me and work in me and move in me to walk in his ways. Do you think they just took that lightly? No, that's a big deal. That is a big promise that they're looking for. And of the new covenant, we get it. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of what we're seeing here. God is promising so much in this new covenant that's available to us. Go back to, uh, to Hebrews. Hebrews 8. As we keep going through this new covenant. I want us to look back at 10 where he says something that has been ministering to me this week. It deserves a sermon on its own. In verse 10, this, these two words deserve a sermon or a message on their own. In verse 10, the bottom portion where he says, I will be their God. And then he says, and they shall be my people. And they shall be my people. That word right there deserves a message on its own. The weight of what God is saying here is humongous. Outside of this covenant that God is making, guess what? You are not a people of God. You are separated from God. There is no relationship with God. You are not a child of God. Outside of this covenant, you are an enemy of God. You are a captive of Satan. You, you, you must understand the beauty of what he's, what he's saying here when he says that my people, they shall be my people. Outside of this covenant, you are not a child of God. You're not born this way. Let me give you a better example of this. When I was a kid, we'd be going on a long trip. We would play a game. It's called my car. And the kids, so you're driving, you see a nice car go by. You want, you say, my car. And you see another nice, cool car going by. And you, you, you with your cousin who's going to say it first, you go, my car. And whoever says first, my car, the, the beautiful car that they see driving by, whoever says that first, my car, it's yours, you're saying, right? So we just be driving on a long trip saying, my car, my car, my car, because we like these beautiful cars that we're seeing. And so we're, we're claiming them. We're saying that they're ours. Guess what? In this verse, God is saying that about you. He's saying, my people. He's saying that you are mine. You're my possession. 
You're, 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 see, uh, the beauty of what God is, God is putting claims on you. He's saying that you're my possession. It's, it's above all the people of the world. You're mine. I'm claiming you. You're all of, of me. Look at, look at, matter of fact, John 10. John 10. Go to John 10 real quick. Oh, the beauty of this verse of God claiming you, even despite you, despite what we've done, God is still claiming and saying, these are my people. This is mine. This is my possession. Look at John 10, 27. God is claiming you. He's putting claims on you. It's in your mind. Let's see how he shows us that here. 27, he says, this is Jesus talking. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. Look, and no one snatches them out of what? My hand. Jesus is saying, you're in my hands. You're my possession. I'm claiming you. You're mine. You're my people. That's Think of that symbolism. You see a kid with candy and they're holding tight because they, they love this candy so much. They, they love that popsicle. So they're holding. They say, this is mine. God is saying that about you. You're in my hands. You're, you're my people. And then as you keep reading in the text, look what he says. He says, my father who has given you to me is greater than all. And look, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So he said, you're in my hand. You're in the father's hand. You're our possession. I have you. I'm gathering you. You're all of mine. See, this is a beauty. What God is saying that comes to a person entering into a covenant relationship with God. God puts claims on you. And he said, you are mine believers. God, I pray that you see this. Oh, Saying you're mine. Let's go. Let's keep going. Go to Titus. Go to Titus. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. 2, verse 14. In this covenant, look what he's talking about the possession. Hope you're seeing how this is all connecting here. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Look who he says. Are we going to go here? He says, I'm going to start at 13 to give you a better context. It says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own what possession to purify a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds that's what he's saying god is claiming you he says i'm doing this to purify people for my own possession who are in my hand who are mine. That's what God, like the God that created the world and, and, and Mars and stars. He, he said, these, these people are mine. Take that personal God has sent to you that you're mine. Eternally, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of the covenant, but you're mine. And so that's what he's showing us the beauty in this verse. And to show you the extent of how much he loves you and how much he wants you, how much you are his possessions, let's go to Romans. Romans 8, 32. Told you it's a lot of scriptures. 
but I want you to see it with your own eyes. Look at the extent of God's claim on you. Romans 8, 32. Look what he says here. He says, he who did not spare his own son, here it goes, look, but delivered him over for us all. He who did not spare his son, but delivered him over for us, the possession. God the Father is sending his son to get you as his possession. And the son is consenting to it because of love. That's how much God is saying you're my possession. That's how tight he's holding you. That's how much he's saying that I have given over my son for you, for us all. God, that is the, the, the beauty when you, when you recognize this, when you, when you see this, you, you come to know that I'm never alone, that I am never forsaken. Since God has me, since I am his possession, where is depression? Where is loneliness? Where is feeling alone? I have God who's holding me, who I'm always with. And so look at the words. See, this is what you preach to yourself in those times when you feel down, those times when you feel alone. You look at these verses and these, these promises that are coming from God and you begin to recite them to yourself and you begin to just speak them to yourself and you keep reminding that I am God's possession he gave his son up for me that's the proof of his love that is a demonstration of his love and so you just keep speaking and preaching life to yourself by the promises of God I'm not alone God is he's holding me I'm his possession I'm his treasure it's the beauty of what he's saying here in this new covenant that comes with being his people Ah, my Lord. Let's get back to the covenant that we're going through. Hebrews 8. You should be my people. Let's keep reading down to verse, let's look at 11. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 11. Since we just hit through 10. Verse 11 now says, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizens and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. So God has opened himself to all. It's no longer they're so dependent upon this priest that they can't go to God themselves. So now it's God opened it to all that they all would know him. But I just want to skip to 12 because that is just so beautiful here. He says, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. God is saying here in this text that sin is gone because of this covenant. It's, it's done with. It's no longer something that I have to worry about being attributed to my account. It's, it's, it's wiped away. He said, I'm not going to remember it no more. It's no longer attributed to, to me. It's gone forever. I, you am totally forgiven. God has shown us here in this covenant. It's the beauty that it's, it's done with. He's saying in this covenant that he's making. 
You don't have to remember it. it, it there's no more of that. That it's it's building up to me, and I got to stand before God with this sin account, and I I know what I've done. He's saying that no, because of this covenant that we're entering into, I'm going to be merciful to their iniquities, and their sins are just gone. They're wiped away. They're forgiven. I, I, I think about Romans. Let me, let's contrast that matter of fact. Let's go to Romans chapter 2, verse 5. I want to contrast and show you why that is just so humongous, what, he, what he's saying there in this covenant. Romans 2, verse 5. So look what it says here. It says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, you are storing up, building up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation and of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. So what is Paul saying here? He's basically showing us that our sins just don't evaporate. It's not like if I just sinned um, and it just disappeared and, went and just went into space. But he's saying that outside of this covenant, when we're not in a right relationship with God, our sins is storing up wrath for us. So our wrath account is building every time we walk out of God's laws, every time we walk out of his ways. He's showing us that our sin account, this wrath is storing up, it's building up. So it's not disappearing. But what God is saying in Hebrews, he's saying that account that was storing up wrath that you have been building up since you were a child, that account is now closed. That bank is now closed. It is no longer attributed to you. It, it is gone. It is wiped away. I have remembered it no more. Your account is closed. That account that you have been accumulating wrath from God and walking in disobedience, it's, it's gone. It's done away with. You are eternally, you are forgiven. It's not on you anymore. And that's the beauty of this, this covenant that God is showing you, that you don't have to worry. That thing is closed. Go back to Hebrews. Hebrews. But go to chapter 10, verse, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Look what he says here. For by one offering, he has, I love this verse, perfected, by one offering, he has perfected for all times or for eternity, those who are sanctified or being sanctified. By one offering, talking about Christ's death, his blood, he has perfected, perfected forever. It says all time. It's gone. You're totally forgiven, he's saying. You're totally cleansed. You stand perfected in my eyes. You stand righteous in my eyes. You are gone. Your sins are washed away. You're cleansed. Who by Jesus, by one offering, he's saying here. That is how God can make the covenant that I'm going to never remember your sins anymore. It is this one offering that has perfected you eternally. Ah, the freedom, the joy that that brings, that knows that my account is closed. Let us stand now before God, righteous, no sin upon me, holy, because of this one offering. 
So the question is in this, how does God accomplish such a thing? Kind of gave the answer earlier, but I just, this is part of my text, the way to say it. How does God accomplish something, such a thing? How does God enter into such an agreement with such sinful people? And how do we know that this covenant is forever true? It's a question. How does God accomplish this covenant that he's saying we're perfected and we stand righteous and that we now have his heart and his spirit? And how do we, how does he accomplish all of this? And how can we know that such an agreement will never end? And, and, and how can he do his being God, such a holy God and we're such sinful people? How can this holy God enter in such a covenant with a sinful group of people? How can he do this? And it's by one answer. It's the blood of Jesus. The blood, the blood of Jesus. Let me explain it to you this way. Have you ever um, seen those movies, Outbreak? It's the one I used last time. Outbreak. You ever seen Outbreak? It's it's a movie where I'll just give you in general. You ever seen those movies where there's this outbreak of a disease of some disease is spreading across the country, across the world, and people are just catching this disease and they're getting sick left and right, they're getting sick left and right, and and you have oftentimes in that movie you have this one hospital that's open, right? Everything's like a destruction, but you have this one hospital that's open, and and they have this one wing where all the sick people are 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 in this one wing. They're all sick because they have this disease, and then you you often have in those movies they have this other room where all the healthy people are. They're waiting for a cure. They're just living life, but they're not dealing with this disease. And, and, and sometimes in those movies, you have it where you have somebody from the healthy side, a doctor, he wants to go check on the sick people. So he puts on this, this huge, like full body suit. You see those movies where they put in this full body suit. They got gloves. They got this helmet on. They got an oxygen tank inside so that they don't breathe the air. And so they put on all of these, these garments, these clothes so that they can go to the infected side of the people and service them and give them medicine and try to help them. So this doctor puts on all this gear. And he walks through and he goes into the sick side and he goes and he serves the people. He, he gives them water, he gives them drink. And after he leaves the sick people, you often see in those movies, the doctor will go back. He'll go through this door, the door closed behind him. And he's in like this, this sanitation chamber. And you see all of this like stuff coming out. It's cleansing him, all this disease. It's washing his full body suit. And once all that's washed off, then you see another door open. And he can go right back in and he can take his suit off and he can go be with all the other people. That is a great example of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus, and why we need him. See, we are the people in that sick room dying because we all have been bitten by the serpent of sin. And that venom, that sin is inside of us and we are infected. We are dying. We are just like those people in the outbreak movie. We are stuck over here in this sick room. And in order for us to get clean, we would have to go through this door. The door, in this sense, is Jesus. And we have to enter the sanitation chamber. And Jesus' blood is now that sanitation chamber. It's the one that cleanses us and, and washes us and makes us right so that now we can go to this new door and begin to live. That is how God accomplishes this covenant. He, he, this is how he gets into it with a sinful people. It is through Jesus' blood that he cleanses us and makes us righteous so that we can now enter into this covenant with God. Jesus is the blood that makes us holy so that we are spotless now and so that we can begin to walk into a newness of life. That is why the blood here is so important. It's the cleansing agent. 
This is how God allows himself to enter into a covenant with a sinful people. The blood is the cleansing agent, just like in the movie. It cleanses us so that we can now be healthy and begin to walk in a newness of life. Jesus is the door. His blood is the cleansing agent. Why does God require blood? Because for our sin, he is righteous and holy and he requires the life of a thing. That's scripture. God is so holy. And so that's what he requires. And for us humans, a bull and a goat won't do, but it's another person. And that is Christ. So now let's land this plane and let's get back to our main text, Matthew 26. And let's see if we can get an understanding from here. Matthew 26, verse 26 to 28. Are we here? I just want us to look at 28 uh, first, because that's the point here. He says, for Jesus says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So we see that the blood is the cleansing agent. But this verse is multifold when Jesus says the blood. A way to explain this is this. In the Old Testament, when Moses came down to the people, he, he, he gave the people the laws, the commandments, the Ten Commandments, all those different things. This is in Exodus 24, if you want to want to go there or read on your time. When Moses gives the people the law, he has the, the, some of the men to go get a bull, an animal for a, a burnt offering, and he has them to get another animal for a peace offering. Burnt offering is for a sense to cleanse, peace offering, peace with God. And he gets that animal, and they slit his neck, and they sacrifice it. And Moses gets the blood of that animal. Puts it in a basin, the scripture says. And then he gets it, the hyssop branch, this branch. And he dips it in there. And then he recites the, the covenant or the law to the people. And the people said, yes, everything you said, God, we will do. And so then Moses get the blood and he begins to throw it on the people like this. And he tells them, this is the blood of the covenant. Just like what Jesus is saying here, my blood of the covenant. Moses tells the Old Testament people as he's throwing his blood and it's, this blood is hitting their clothes, it's hitting their face, it's hitting their body. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant. Now I want to show you the difference between that blood and what Jesus is saying here. In that sense, or the Old Testament, the blood is just hitting the flesh. The blood is just hitting their face. It's just hitting their clothes. It has no real power. But in the new covenant, Jesus is telling us to what? As we do communion, to drink the blood, his blood. Why? Because Jesus is cleansing us from the inside where the change needs to take place. The Old Testament was external. But in this new covenant, the blood is now changing us from the inside out as opposed to just an external covering. 
So we saying that this is the blood of the new covenant that you're taking in because it's representing the cleansing that comes by being united with him. That is why he's showing us that this blood must be consumed. And that is why it's the grace of God that when you take it, you understand this is Jesus. He has cleansed me from the inside out. I am new because of Jesus' blood that has cleansed me. It's, it's different. It's much better than the old covenant where it's just on the flesh on the outside. But no, this thing has been consumed inside of us. It's changing you from the inside out. It's the blood of Christ. But the blood even goes further than that. It, it goes further than that. Let me give you an example of this. And uh, Go to Genesis 15. This will be our last scripture. Genesis 15. I want to show you how the blood goes even further than that. Genesis 15. Verse 8 and 11. Genesis chapter 15, verse 8 and 11. All right, so what's happening here, you have Abraham, Abram, if you want to go technical. God's coming up to him, to him, and he's making him a promise. God is telling all these great things that he's going to do for Abraham. And Abraham, like many of us, we're like, okay, God, I hear all this good stuff you're telling me, Lord. I see it. It's good. But how do I know that you're really going to do this thing? I know that it's God he's talking to, and hopefully we would never go at God like that. But he's saying, how do I know that I'm really going to inherit these promises that you have given me? And so look what God tells him to do here. Look at verse 8. And he said, oh, Lord God, how many, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle's dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought these to him and cut them in two. And laid each half opposite the other, but did not cut the birds. The birds of the prey came down in the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. Look at verse 17. And it came about when the sun had set, um, when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So what's happening here? During this period, when a person entered a covenant, they didn't have escrow like we do. They didn't have recorders where you can just go down to your country recorder. They would do something called a blood covenant. And a blood covenant was where with Abraham, you would get animals. You would slice the animals in half. You would separate them on two sides. So you got these animals, blood, everything. They're nasty animals. And they're, they're cut in the middle. One half on the side, one half on the side. So you had a whole long line. And so when individuals went into agreement, they would both walk down this path together. And what they were doing when they came to the end of this, this path where the two animals were at, you ultimately were saying, may this happen to me. May my life be given if I do not keep the covenant. So that's what they would do. They would cut it in half. And then you would walk through the pieces. And once you walk through the piece, that contract, that covenant is signed, sealed, and delivered. And you're saying, may my life be given if I do not keep this covenant. Jesus said, this is the blood of the covenant. 
It's his blood. God is saying here, look, may this happen to me. We know that God will never fail. He said, may this death, may this happen to me if I don't keep the covenant. He's showing us how eternal it is. He's showing us that this is my son's blood. I would never break the covenant. It's my son's blood, and this is not happening to me. So this is my guarantee, just like he did with Abraham, that I will never break this covenant, that you are forever my people. It's the blood. He's walking through. Jesus is dying on the cross. He's the covenant. His blood is the blood of the covenant. See, a covenant does not get ratified until there's blood spilled. That is why when Jesus died, the covenant came into effect. Without him dying and shedding his blood, there is no covenant. There's just a promise. But until that blood is shed, that is when the covenant is ratified. That is when the covenant is signed into agreement. That is when the covenant is now taking place. And so Jesus is saying, this is the blood covenant. Now these promises These old covenant, old testament promises. Now they can come to bear. Now you can receive all of the promises. But first, my blood has to be shed for that to happen. That is when the covenant is enacted. So you gotta see that when we're taking this cup, those things, maybe not all at once, need to be running through your mind. When you say that blood, understand this is the blood of the covenant. This is God's guarantee. I'm, I'm never changing. He's swearing by himself because Jesus is God. So it's by his own blood. He said that this covenant is never changing. You're my people. These promises that I said, they're coming. They're to you. you, you your new heart, yes, that's that's part of the covenant. Your, your new mind, that's part of the covenant. You're, you're my possession now. I'm holding you in my hands. So we don't take this lightly when we see the cup in the body. Jesus said, this is my blood. The blood of the covenant. So by faith, we enter into this covenant. Claiming Jesus as our righteousness, our justification. Believing everything that God said about him, that he did come from God. That his death, he was the sacrifice for our sins. That through him, I can have life. He is my Lord. He says in Hebrews that they're going to be, I'm going to be their God. So he's my God. And they're going to be my people. That's what we're saying. When we take this Lord's Supper communion. So think about that, brothers and sisters, as you do it. It's the covenant. It's God's promise. He guaranteed it by blood. He said, I would never change. This is never ending. You are eternally perfected. The scripture we read. Eternally clean. You stand before me. Righteous because of my son, Jesus, and his blood that was spilled, that enacted or ratified this covenant that I promised. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for your grace in this new covenant, God. It is because of the covenant work of the Spirit of God inside of me why I'm even saying these words right now, Lord. It is because of the covenant and the promises that believers are standing here worshiping you, God. It's because of the blood of the covenant that has watched each believer here to why we are now in a new mind and a new spirit. 
It was your work. God, thank you. You didn't have the guarantee, but God, thank you. We love you, Lord. Work in our hearts. Today, God, may we remember this covenant as we partake of Lord's Supper. May we remember your blood. May we remember your body. That we're eternally yours. That we're your possession. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.